Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Couch Potato Coach podcast. This is episode 12. Today's episode is completely different. For the very first time on my podcast, I am interviewing a guest. I'm introducing you to a new friend of mine, Dr. Danielle Miller. So she is just someone I consider to be revolutionary with what she does in the healthcare field. She owns her own private practice here in Lancaster, PA, and it's just, it's structured in a way that I had never heard of before. I learned a lot with my conversation with her, and I'm just really excited to share it with you guys. I'm also very excited to announce that my business, my coaching business, is officially open as of June 13th. That is next Monday, June 13th of 2022. Really excited. You can just go to my website and check out all of the details for that if you're interested. It's couchpotatocoachllc.com and I will link that in the show notes so you can get there easily. So... So before I get into my conversation, let me tell you a little bit more about Dr. Miller. She is a board-certified family physician who received her medical degree from Drexel University College of Medicine and completed her residency at Lancaster General here in Lancaster, PA. She founded her own private practice in October of 2020 called Loose Medicine She loves working with patients of all ages and stages in life, and she finds true meaning in connecting and learning with her patients. You can learn all about Dr. Miller on her website, loosemedicine.com, which I will link in the show notes and also on my website under the podcast tab. Without further ado, let's say hi to the fabulous Dr. Miller. Welcome. Hello, Megan. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. I'm very happy that you're here. Let's dive right in. Before you tell everyone sort of specifics of how you run your office, would you mind providing us with the backstory, you know, sort of the context, what, what made you want to be a doctor in the first place and where you started out, what led you to the place where you decided you wanted to open your own practice? Sure. I'd be happy to do that. So, um, I recently realized, just been reflecting a lot this last year, that I decided to become a physician 24 years ago. So I was in high school and um, had thought about a few different things. Probably in middle school, I started thinking about what I might want to do as an adult and then had a few different evolutions of that. And when I was um, 16, I decided I'm going to be a physician and take care of people and um I wanted to help others. It was funny to realize recently that that was so long ago, you know, almost two mm-hmm. and a half decades ago. I and can't I you knew at such a young age. Yeah, right. Even one of my brothers actually said that to me several years ago. He, in his 30s, thought, oh, how did you know this way back then? And you really do, in order to uh, finish training, you sort of have to make these decisions at a relatively young age. Of course, you could do it later, but it always takes over a decade to train. So um, that's true. Cool. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> So it's a funny thing, but I, I realized it was 24 years ago I made this decision. And finally, this year, I'm 100, 100% certain that it was the right decision through and through. I don't question it at all. I think there's, because it is such an investment, there were so many times that I questioned if I was doing the right thing. And I took a year off before medical school, after undergraduate um, education, just to even think about it more and to really decide. So it's been fun to reflect on that and just feel so certain that it was the right choice. I made that decision at a young age and 
you know, you do your four years of college. I then took a gap year for one year where I really thought about whether or not I wanted to commit to medicine. I decided I did. And then I went to four years of medical school, as you said, in Philadelphia. And you have to train in your given field as a physician, as a young physician. You can't just start practicing right away. So I chose family medicine, and that's what brought me here to Central PA. And you have to make all these decisions so quickly and so young, and they have such large implications in in the medicine field. You know, I feel yes. like that might be a little bit different than your average career, where we don't need a decade worth of training. It's true, right? It's funny. It was always what it was. I think a lot of kids feel this if they feel pressured or otherwise feel a lot of um, anticipation around them with college. You know, I think a lot of kids feel this similar. For sure. Um, yeah. But, or just, you know, and then when you go to college, everyone asks you what you're studying. I mean, there's always <laughs> that next step. So I really didn't know any differently. It was actually a funny thing to finish my residency training, which in family practice is three years. Other fields can be much longer than that. After my three years, it was the first time in my adult life, now I'm almost 30 at this time, that I didn't have a next step in the next few years. So that was a really interesting thing. When I finished my training and got my first job, I was then on my own clock, you know, my own time schedule. Oh, okay. So you basically had a plan laid out. Like you just follow this next step, this next step, this next step. Yes. And then, then you get a job and you're like, oh, now I can sort of create my own path in the medicine world. Is that? Yes. You're in your late twenties or somewhere in your thirties and you get to get a job and decide how long you stay there for the first time in your life. (laughs) Not anyone who ever anticipated to stay locally here in central PA. I'm really more of a city kid, but um, decided Mm -hmm. to stay, found a great practice. Again, not what I expected at all. I thought even if I stayed in Lancaster, I'd be in an urban setting. I ended up working in a small suburban practice, which was shocking to me. But it was just the most wonderful place to be a young physician. I had physicians of all different ages. I had men and women, people with different medical interests within family medicine. Um, A couple of the docs there were incredible with geriatrics, one who was great with sports med, and all these various other areas. So it was just the most perfect job. So here I was fresh out of training somewhere in the neighborhood of uh, almost 30 years old and uh, had my first job and it was just perfection. And I thought, Oh my goodness, I might have one job the rest of my life. It was, it was so great, Wow, which was shocking and exciting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, You don't expect to hit the job lottery like that at 30. That's for sure. Yes. And really my first job that I had any decision in making, right? Because everything else is you apply and get picked from an application process. So That's interesting. And at that point, I'd already worked, I don't know, 30 different jobs in my life. Right, exactly. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I get it. So it's just such a different path. And it was, it was really exciting to be there. It was wonderful. Well, so obviously, you didn't stay there forever. Right. So, so what happened? My small private practice ended up becoming part of a corporate hospital system. So medicine, as I'm guessing we'll talk about the next several minutes here, is really an evolving field. And there is just so much going on within, shall we say, the industry, right? Yeah. Uh, So it's becoming increasingly difficult for private practices to stay private. So it was hard to really keep the doors open and pay everyone the way insurance reimbursements were changing. And so... Mm -hmm the practice became purchased by a local hospital system. Can you tell me a little bit more about why it's harder to sustain a private practice? 
the way our our medical care works in this country is insurances have certain rates that they'll reimburse doctors for their care. Those rates actually can differ based on who owns the practice or all sorts of different features. So as a private practice, we got paid less than other offices in the area for certain, for general medical care that we provide. And those so rates- So they pay you less than like a large hospital. Yes. Yes. And those rates were really changing. They were changing rapidly. So it was not something that we could really sustain as a practice. Wow. They made the decision to sell. Um, and it, you know, our office was connected actually to several other private practices as well. So in the larger community, it was about a hundred physicians that were affected or more probably, but. Wow. That's a huge network then. Yeah. So it, so yeah, three years before I left, um, the practice changed and, you know, it went by the same name for a little while and it was at the same location for a little while, but they had, you know, the name changed, location changed. Um, we noticed day one as a practice, we were physicians who owned the practice and really controlled all the clinical care, all the, all the small things that made us really effective in treating patients often voted the best practice in the county and actually receiving national awards as far as quality of care measures by Medicare. So it was really just an incredible practice, but we noticed as physicians day one that things were different. In retrospect, now that I'm on the other side of the experience, I'm grateful it was clear early. I knew within, even in the first weeks and months after the purchase, I knew that I was going to be making a change. Um, Can so you tell me how you knew that? Like what was going on? It was the beginning of a new arrangement for the practice and it was already harder to help patients. You know, you do spend all that time like we talked about and all these years of deciding and committing, and you really do give your 20s to medicine. Uh, you yeah. don't have them for yourself. You don't have any time. You don't have any personal life. And then um, it's hard to take care of patients, and it's hard to spend time with patients, and it's hard to help them. So, I mean, there were infinite small changes just happening all the time. So the way things work as a physician, you can't just go and change your job. So you're always in a contract. And okay. so the, okay. yes, which is, uh, maybe some people are familiar within certain industries of the idea of a non, I didn't, I didn't know that. I thought you could just kind of leave, you know, I thought it was at will. Yeah. Yes. So certain industries don't really have that option. So we had either a three or a four year contract when I came to corporate office. And thankfully I was given a three year contract, which I'm grateful for. Mm. Also these things that you can't really control. And I just got handed a contract. I didn't get to choose. I had a three year contract and just decided pretty much within several months, I was sure I was, I mean, I was hundred percent sure I was leaving. So again, this is the fall winter of 18 into 19 and then spent about two years figuring out what I would do. Calling every doctor I knew all over the place locally or not and asking what they were doing for work and, and how it was going and, and realizing, gosh, I really did have it so good for so long. And, and most folks I know are really unhappy and thinking about what their next step is going to be trying to make the best of a situation that was sounded really awful. <laughs> that was disappointing. Again, good to have that negative information up front because it helped so much with my decision process, but it was a little bit shocking how bad the landscape was for people I knew in different practices all over the place, different practice models. Um, even though I had found my Camelot at the gate of my training program, there was this whisper always I would say even within the first year, couple years, there was this whisper in the back of my mind of, you know, it would be really neat to open up a practice that is totally different, that 
meets a specific need that is, I don't know anyone doing the kind of practice that I envisioned in the back of my mind, but it was just a tiny whisper. And it was that, that is a trend among (laughs) small business owners. I don't know if you know this. No, I don't. But yes. Okay. So this is a thing. Tell me all like it just, it's, they describe it as a small whisper, this very, very quiet voice that just keeps cycling around every so often to this quote unquote crazy idea of, you know, cause I feel like we're all a little crazy. If you start your own business, we're a little, we're a little off. I don't know the best way to describe us, you know, a hundred percent. It was totally a crazy idea. You know, I have this idea happening at the same time that every private practice in many regions, pretty much all over the country have already folded to a corporate hospital system or we're planning it. Right. So, Oh, I've noticed that in this area. Yes. You see several private practices when we first moved here seven years ago. Yes. And now all of the ones that I knew of are under a big corporation name now. That's exactly right. Yeah. And because we're in central Pennsylvania, that happened in other cities that are larger, more metropolitan, you know, that happened earlier. Um, So what we're talking here is like an office in Kansas runs a hundred hospitals. Broad example, we'll say that an office in Kansas makes the rules for a hundred different hospitals within their region. And all of these hospitals have to follow these same rules, even if the rules don't fit with good patient care, what's going on in the community, the doctor's experience, best practices. And is that sort of right? Or is it more geared towards insurance? All of the, all of these things locally, there are four hospital systems. They increasingly have purchased all the practices in our region. They sort of each have their own way of saying, this is the way we do it. And, um, people kind of go along with that certain supplies that we had and certain procedures that we did. Nope. You can't do that anymore. Well, why not? Well, because we don't do that, you know, and our practice had really been tailor made around the needs of our community. And again, as physician owners in the private system, we all directly manage everyone. So all of a sudden there are these new bosses managing the doctors telling us how to do our job, new bosses managing the nursing staff, the middle management that come out of nowhere that are telling everyone what to do. It was just so different so quickly. Um, and who really suffered in, these, in the situation? Like your patients are the ones that end up with the poor care? I think 100% everyone suffers. The only people that don't are the middle management and the larger corporate leaders um, thrilled to have acquired all these physicians and their patients. Um, You know what? That's a really good point because I think sometimes we think that the doctors are sort of, you know, on the side of insurance, on the side of these big hospitals. And that's a really good point that you're making that no, the doctors are also very unhappy within these systems. Yes, I would agree. You know, I'm, of course, I have lots of friends and folks that I care about in medicine. So I know how unhappy they are, but it's probably true. The public doesn't realize how unhappy most people in medicine are, doctors, nurses. We're not in agreement with any of those larger insurance decisions or, and we ample, I think the patient has a certain medical illness. I want to order a certain test that's going to rule it in or rule it out. The insurance won't approve the test because they don't yet have that diagnosis on their chart. Well, I can't get that diagnosis on their chart until I order the test. (laughs) (laughs) You know, like this ludicrous thinking. So, uh, yeah, I would say I know patients are generally unhappy with the state of medical care in our country, and I'd be willing to wager that most all the people that work in that system are also unhappy. So it's probably underappreciated, but 
Yeah, no, I mean, that that's new for me. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize that there was such widespread unhappiness on the doctor side, but it makes sense because I do think the majority of the doctors out there genuinely care about their patients and want to help them. Yes. And, you know, say that I knew if I stayed, it was uh, be unhappy, f- no job satisfaction, feel controlled by someone who has no idea what I'm really doing day to day. But also I knew that there was almost certainty of eventual burnout. Was it going to be sooner? Was it going to be later? And Mm. a lot of times when patients tell me negative interactions with docs, I can tell by the way the story goes that that doc is playing burnout Mm. and it had nothing to do with the patient and the doc is all those dissatisfactions I described, that doc is feeling them and is so burnt out that I don't even realize how negative the interaction was. And I mean, everyone loses. Well, well, we're seeing a mass burnout. We're seeing a Mm -hmm. mass exodus a lot of doctors, a lot of nurses mm-hmm. leaving, um, you know, obviously COVID con- yeah. contributed to that and the yeah. burnout, but yeah. yeah. Okay. People retiring That's- early who didn't want to, mm-hmm. um, and less applicants to, uh, nursing school and medical assistant school, uh, you know, and yeah. we need those people. There are more, um, medical assistants and nurses and there are doctors. So, you know, we need those people <laughs> to, we need people to want to care about people, but when it's a lose-lose situation and, you know, it's just not an environment people want to enter. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I realized at a certain point that I was going to open my own practice during this journey of, oh gosh, what on earth is the next step going to be? Um, then tried to examine every possible way to do that, knowing that this was a crazy idea, just as you said, because how am I going to open a practice when, increasingly every medical office is not, uh, financially viable in this day and age. (laughs) And I looked at a couple different options. I knew that I was not going to accept insurance because really insurance is paying me as a family physician to spend five to 10 minutes with every patient. And I knew as a physician in practice for almost a decade at that time that Mm -hmm. couldn't do justice to hardly anyone in five to 10 minutes that I needed longer office visits. And so I knew that insurance wouldn't actually work for the type of care that I deliver to patients. So I ended up stumbling, a friend pointed me based on her own experience at her own private practice. uh, She ended up pointing me to a model called direct primary care, meaning the patient pays a monthly membership fee for access to the doc. It's a more personal relationship. They have direct access to their doc. They're paying the doc's office directly. And then insurance is kind of out the window as far as restrictions on time spent, access. Um, Most direct primary care docs like me are on call a good bit of the time, even outside of office hours. So if my patient has a question about their body and isn't sure if they should go to the ER, they can ask me that, which is really incredible. You know, just having someone who knows who you are, you know, just one of the million things that changed when we became corporate we shared call the uh, 10 or 12 docs um, at the time shared call week to week. We just switched weeks. The patient got access to us. And then once we became corporate, it went to a call center in the South with thick accents. No one could understand the nursing staff on the other end. And it took somewhere between 30 minutes and two hours to even speak to the nurse because they were so oh, busy wow. taking and when calls. You're, when, you're, when you're wondering if you should go to an ER or not, like those those minutes feel like hours. Right. Yeah, that's and that's an unreasonable time frame. No access to the patient's chart. Uh, that's just such a different experience than my doctor responding to my call if I'm the patient and knowing who I am and knowing what I need and being able to help. So 
Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we have to pause for a second because this to me is like, it's a revolutionary idea. It goes against our current system and it really speaks to the core of a lot of the problems in our current healthcare system. You get paid directly by the patient. Yes. Okay. So we know that you're actually getting paid and there's no conflict of interest. You don't have to prescribe a particular medication. You don't have to do a particular procedure. You can just do what's best for the patient. Right. So within this model, and maybe even before I say that, just for pause for a second, in the direct primary care sort of uh, landscape, the prices are reasonable. There, our fees are. No, your fees are very yeah. reasonable. Right. Yes, and that's typical. And I think, are your fees on your website? They are. Most direct primary care docs have their fees visible to the public, which is also different than concierge, and they are yeah. reasonable. I, w- I would say they're very reasonable. More people probably, you probably pay more for the gym every month. Right. So membership, things like the gym, cell phone, people have that idea, but this is, you know, dock at your fingertips for a reasonable fee. And then because we are not paid through insurance, we have access to really neat options as far as medications, imaging, and uh, laboratory um, rates, which the patient could absolutely use their insurance if those things are well covered. And that's no mm-hmm. problem at all. We can absolutely mm-hmm. bill their insurance. Uh, or alternatively, I can quote a price to a patient up front. Oh, so, that is music to my ears because I can't tell you how much, like, this is so weird to me. I go in to get help from a doctor and they make me sign five different ways that I'm going to pay the doctor. They never tell you how much you're going to owe, but you have to sign on your life that you will pay them. Nowhere else in our society can you walk into a store, the store tell you, okay, you need to sign every single form that you're going to pay us. And you ask, okay, well, what will the bill be? Oh, we can't tell you that. Right? Right. Like if you walked into a store, any store, (laughs) you were like, I need to know how much this is going to cost. They, they yeah. would tell you. I don't understand how this is legal, to be honest. It, right. The, increasingly, there are actually laws in some progressive states around this. Um, in Colorado, I think hospitals can't bill patients to collect hospital bills unless the prices are transparent when the patient entered care, <laughs> which is fascinating because hospital bills can actually bankrupt people I'm sure as you may have heard oh Uh, yeah my insurance doesn't I have a high deductible plan for insurance which means mm -hmm. that we pay everything until we meet our deductible and the deductible is large enough that we pay everything every time every year and it's Mm -hmm. thousands of dollars because I have small children no one told me what the bills would be up front but they'll send you a huge bill for hundreds I mean seven hundred dollars five hundred dollars and they come quickly and you never know how many are coming. It's just, it boggles my mind how they think that we're able to just afford right. these bills. Yeah, it's the medical system. So the direct primary care model, there is this, um, I would say, again, this sort of view from the public that a lot of people do depend on their insurance to, quote, pay for everything. But that's not, almost always, that is actually not the case. You can think of direct primary care almost the way you might think of your car insurance. And then when you need maintenance... Um, yes. Inspection, yeah. you know, you have to do those things. So, but if you could actually get a bill up front so you know what the cost is, then you can make an informed decision versus right. having it, you know, a bill sent and then it affecting right. your credit and you having to make hard choices about paying right. that bill. 
hundred percent direct primary care, everything within our office. There are never co-pays. You'll never get a fee or um, a bill for something like a strep test or a pregnancy test or a flu test. Um, you know, the things that we can do in house, um, yeah. EKG actually we can do in house, which, um, oh, okay. I tried to get a cash price for an EKG for a patient before we got our machine and one of the local hospitals, no one can tell us the price, but one of the four that we called and all the other three said, we have no idea. We cannot possibly tell you how much an EKG was and she needed one preoperatively. So, you know, it's just a real challenge. Oh yeah lab fees. I had a patient who needed a single lab test at least once a year to maintain her thyroid medication. And it's a single easy peasy lab test and her insurance charged her $125. That was the last time she got that, not at my office because our charge for that test is $3. I mean, we do recommend folks have insurance, like the way you think of car insurance. If your car gets totaled, you're so glad you have car insurance, of course. Right. Yeah. Right. But that's what it's for. It's just for catastrophic events. And I have to say, I don't mind paying if I'm getting a service. Right. What I hate is why pay my insurance or I'll pay to go to the doctor. And then I don't feel like my health issues have been addressed. That's my problem. If they gave me that bill, but I was better, (laughs) I might be, you know, less better. Yeah. So it's just a really different patients do feel the patients who take a chance on the model or who are familiar with the model and commit or recommit, depending if they've moved or something, um, you know, they are, they love the model and they feel that they are absolutely getting their money's worth as far as sanity, reliability, you know, just that yeah. professional voice of help when they need it. Yeah. It's hard for me to imagine what it would feel like to have a doctor that actually listened to me because I haven't experienced it. I haven't had that before. So tell me a little bit about when your patients come in for the first time, do they react in shock when you are doing their evaluations? So we meet patients with what's called a meet and greet. That can be on phone, video, or in person. Again, we're flexible with all those things. I would say almost universally get the response even during a meet and greet. Oh my gosh, this has been so helpful. I'm so grateful you took the time. I feel like you know who I am. <laughs> you know, Just through the meet and greet. Yes. <laughs> Okay. So, and that's a lot of fun. Even the way our office is physically structured with things like decor and the actual look of the space, we are clean and professional, but don't look how most people think of when they think of sterile medical office. And we get comments on that all the time as well, because it's just really just a different experience for folks. And you're intentional about not making your space like the sterile, cold, typical doctor feel. Yes. Which kind of puts your defenses up when you walk into that makes me feel a little nervous, a little anxious, you know? And as far as anxiety goes, there is a really common phenomenon called medical anxiety. And I notice a lot of my patients tell me that they have medical anxiety. And it's no wonder that so many people have medical anxiety given the system and how cold and powerful it is. Um, yeah. And how patients don't feel seen, heard, or well cared for, yet their life and uh, quality of life is at stake. So, yeah. Uh, we, I really wanted the space to be not just those other things, but also peaceful. I intentionally wanted the space to be peaceful. Yeah. So that was, I mean, you've mentioned so many tenants of our office. Being listened to and listening to the patient is a core tenant. Which that's part of the revolutionary part of your office. And it really should not be. Why is this such a strange concept to us? You know, when you 
run into another um, business owner of any kind or another physician or anyone, maybe a patient, potential patient, someone says, well, what's different about your medical office or what is unique or special about your business? And I often say we're a medical office and practice that really listens to our patients. And that isn't revolutionary or excuse me, shouldn't be revolutionary, but somehow it is. Oh, it is in our current system, but no, it should be the standard. It should be the, the bare minimum that we expect to receive when we go to our doctor. And frankly, I'm not sure how or how it is safe to deliver care if you're not listening to the patient. Okay. So say a little bit more about that since you have time to sit and listen with your, you know, what have you been able to uncover? Just, you know, patients' bodies and minds don't read the textbook when they tell you what's wrong with them. And so it often takes time to figure out what's going on. You also get to learn someone's values of they want every test or they really don't want testing. They want to be in the best shape they can be, or they just want to feel better a little, you know, there are all these sort of value systems that we all operate on when it comes to healthcare. I'm not going to know that if I have five minutes with someone, I'm not going to know how much intervention someone wants when they have complex medical disease, if I don't really have the time to figure that out and maybe even call a family member and get more information or see them back again. Cause I have a free appointment in my schedule because we always have same day and next day visits for patients. You know, there's just so much again, time really the secret sauce of how we provide the care we do. A lot of it is actually having the time. The concept is so simple. Have any of your patients told you that they got such different care when they switched to your practice? Oh yeah. It's a neat experience. Yeah. They, um, they feel better. They are better. They, um, sometimes, you know, really special to hear things like I have hope that, you know, the future is going to be better, um, which is a really neat experience. Well, yeah, Yeah. when you don't feel well, everything Mm -hmm. in your life is hard. And that can really happen at any age in any stage. Illness can be physical, but also there have psychological mental health issues. You know, and do you deal with that a lot in your practice? Yeah. So mental health really is a, by and large, a primary care issue. Primary care physicians provide most psychiatric medications and first point of care and probably ongoing care than psychiatrists, just because there are not uh, that many psychiatrists compared to primary care docs. So I didn't think of that. Think about how many PCPs or primary docs might be in our community versus psychiatrists. Yeah. I honestly wouldn't know. I've never looked. The wait to see psychiatry is typically three to nine months, depending on where. What? Yes. That seems insane. If you're having a mental health issue, you need to wait for nine months to seek help. I mean, what does that tell you about how our society treats a mental health issue? You don't need help right now. You can wait. It's not really that big a deal. Or you can be hospitalized for a mental health issue. So there, you know. That's your option, right? Yes. So I think it's related to the fact that our culture has that American medicine is really amazing if you have an acute trauma like a car accident uh, or acute treatment of a heart attack or a stroke. So we do acute trauma and other acute care really well in the hospital system. And we, things that are probably more common and and certainly more ongoing and long-lived mental health crises that are often protracted and other chronic disease often, of course, protracted over years and decades, we don't do a great job at that. And so um, Mm -hmm. while we have state-of-the-art healing opportunities for things that work, but we don't for I'm suffering 
uh, my family has this history of whatever physical or mental health issue. And, and now I'm suffering from that. We don't, yeah. I think it does say a lot about what we do and don't value and how we view those things. Yet that's what's really more common and, and almost universal. You know, people usually die of chronic illness, not sudden events, though certainly, of course you can, but just by the numbers, that's really like what... Statistically speaking, chronic issues kill more people than acute events. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's what causes more suffering too, by the numbers. Right. Yeah. You suffer for years mm -hmm. until it eventually kills you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So... And yeah, I would say mental health issues, again, medical anxiety, people talk about it a lot at my office. We manage and talk about mental health a lot and um, have a great relationships with so many people in the community who do direct mental health work. I can help get someone started. And if they're um, interested in things like medications, of course, as a physician, I can prescribe that. But as a primary care office, we're not the end all be all for a lot of things. It's it's really wonderful to have a specialist and other helping professionals to get involved. Yeah, absolutely. That's interesting. I wouldn't have really thought that a lot of people would go to you first for a mental health mm -hmm. issue, but I guess if they can't get help anywhere else and they don't know where mm -hmm. else to go. Yeah. Yeah. So do you believe that your private practice model is more representative of how more doctor's offices are going to operate in the future? So a lot of people ask about this model and what, what the I had never heard it before be. you told me, but when you said it, I was like, I love it everything about it, sign me up. <laughs> there are people who think and talk a lot about this. I am new-ish to the model. My office has been open less than two years now, but my opinion with little experience, the system is broken. I think most of us have a sense of that to some degree. Some think it's more broken than others, but I think it's broken. And I think this is a really incredible solution today for a lot of people. The way I also answer this question, because it comes up quite a bit actually, is to say, I have no idea what medicine will look like in 20 or 40 years, but I think this is a really great option for a lot of people right now. And people who know about it are pretty excited about it. And I think the more people know about it, it'll continue to grow. It's just the amount of growth in the last few years of this model, the number of practices is rapidly growing through our country. So, Well, like, that's, that gives me hope to hear that, mm -hmm. honestly, that more people are recognizing that the system we have doesn't work mm -hmm. and we need one that does yeah. and are just crazy enough to do it. That's right. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Cause it's not easy to think about starting your own business. Yeah, it is. A, it, it is still actually a wild thought. <laughs> um, a year and a half later. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Were you scared you're going to fail? You know, it's a funny thing. I think that I had these whispers of this wild dream of an idea to open my own practice and have it look and feel a certain way. And I think once it started to come in motion, I had this other, I want to say it was almost a whisper as well of mm -hmm. this might not work <laughs> and this might be really hard and scary and ultimately fail. Yeah. Um, and I think that that is almost universal amongst anyone who does something pretty bold. And I did a lot of research, you know, spent two years figuring out what on earth I'd do. And then another whole year really planning it before I did it. And so I felt that I understood the most common risks or fails that could be involved and okay. felt that I was prepared enough that I would find an answer to questions as they came. I just think that that feeling of fear of failure 
is a pretty universal phenomenon. I often tell, get this question sometimes when I'm with a medical student or a resident, someone in training who's um, a young doctor or not yet a doctor, and they ask me about what if you mess up as a doctor, all these things. And yeah, you know, it is, it's inevitable. You're not going to be the perfect person in any field at any, you know, all moments of your career. But it, I actually also tell the person that asked me that who's in their training that I'm really glad they're asking that question because if they're not, they might be the cocky doctor that I really don't want to work with. That usually relieves the young person in training <laughs> that, that, that fear-based question might be actually a positive sign. So, mm-hmm. so I'd like to think that maybe in this instance, the fear didn't overtake or anything, but it was there. And maybe that has helped me keep my eyes open with pitfalls and obstacles. But I, I thought about it often in the beginning and in the planning stages and yeah, I'm really going to do this. You know, I quit my job in early COVID days, you know, when when so many really scary and right so scary. many individuals yeah. and families are terrified about their income and their yeah um life and i had planned to do something a couple of years before covid and then decided to do it anyway and that was terrifying frankly i thought yeah I be, yeah i might be really making the wrong decision you know i might be like uh, yeah right? <laughs> you don't want to start a brand new business during a lockdown yeah <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Had had to give notice in May of 2020. It was, it was okay, terrifying. That's when your contract ended. So you didn't really have a choice about that. Is that right? Um, contract ended in, at the end of September, but you had, I had to give notice of many, many days. So I had to give okay. notice. So it COVID was, is like, you know, we're almost in full swing. This is back in like May of 2020. So we've yeah. only had a few months with COVID. Everything was still very scary then. And you're like, nope, I made this decision. COVID doesn't change my mind. I mean, that's crazy. <laughs> it gave me pause. And I did have a few important conversations just talking about that fear and that reality with the people closest to me that knew about this decision. Mm-hmm. And we all felt that even though it was a really risky time and it felt so heightened that it was still the best decision. And again, because of all the uh, rules and regulations around changing my job, it was either to leave then or to not leave for some more years. Wow. And so it was, it felt like a, there was no alternative in that scenario. You just couldn't stay where you were at Mm -hmm. for another couple of years. Yeah. That felt worse than opening your own practice during COVID. If that doesn't speak volumes, I don't know what does. It felt worse, even if I failed felt worse to stay than even if I left and failed, that would be better than staying. But yeah, I think it's good to be a little afraid maybe. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, you kind of spun it into a positive thing where it keeps you on your toes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I do. I think, yeah, I think we in any field, but particularly the culture around doctoring, I think it's good to ask questions and be curious and not always be so, so, so sure about, um, everything. Well, Dr. Miller, thank you so much for joining me today. I've learned a lot. I hope everyone starts talking this way about practicing medicine. I have actually prepared a couple of fun questions to end the sessions. These are some just like tips and tricks for small business owners and just go ahead and answer with the first thing that pops into your mind. Do you think it's harder for women to own their own businesses? There are times where I feel I notice or others notice that I'm a woman. (laughs) 
That has happened even in my career as a doctor. I would walk into the exam room sometimes in my old practice, my sort of happy old place practice, but patient might sometimes say to me, oh, I thought I was meeting with Daniel Miller. Uh, (laughs) And, you know, my name has never been Daniel. It's always been Danielle, but um, people just sometimes assume that a physician will be male. Um, Do you have sort of noticed it might be a little bit more challenging sometimes to be taken seriously? What is your advice for anyone thinking of opening up their own business? Can I give a longer answer, Megan? Is that okay? Yeah. Yeah. That's fine. Advice for anyone opening up their own business. I think it's important to have a clear dream vision, but to also do a lot of homework around that. I also think it's really important, maybe equally important as the job vision is the lifestyle vision of what it will look like to have this business in my actual life Mm -hmm. as in life outside of work. (laughs) Yeah. So I think we ought to, as business owners, have a dream and a vision and be able to do enough homework to execute that, which does take some time. It took me a couple of years, but also how the business will function when you're not actively doing the business, I think is, I think it's equally as important. I hope you all enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Miller as much as I did. I mean, I, I just learned so much. I didn't realize the way that the system is designed is running small family practitioners out of business. Um, I had no idea that physicians and healthcare workers were just as frustrated with the system as their patients. I had no idea that primary care physicians were prescribing the majority of mental health medications. Um, I didn't realize that there were doctors like Dr. Miller out there not accepting insurance so that they could better care for their patients. Um, I love that Dr. Miller was able to identify the situation was lose-lose. I love that she was rebellious enough to believe there was a solution, think creatively about how to make it happen, and then that she was brave enough to implement the solution even when the idea sounded a little bit crazy. I'm inspired by her, and I hope you all are too. And in light of that, my challenge for you this month is to identify the places in your life that are lose-lose and be rebellious enough to believe there is a solution. So go and make some bold decisions this month. Maybe if you're lucky, even a mistake or two. You'll learn something important about yourself in the process, and it's totally worth it. That's a wrap for episode 12 and my first guest on the podcast. And I have to say, I enjoy learning about the interview process and all the editing that goes along with it. Um, Don't forget to check out Dr. Miller's practice on her website, loosemedicine.com. And when you're done there, you can go check out my website and inquire about my coaching services if you're interested. Um, That's couchpotatocoachllc.com. I will list both of those websites in the show notes. I'm, I'm so very grateful that you've listened to my podcast today. As always, I do this more than anything else so that you can come here, listen to my voice, and know that you are not alone. 